is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, Well... Unfortunately, I just learned a very good friend of the show, a very good friend of ours, passed away. Clint Walker. We would have Clint Walker on the program from time to time. Um, He was 90 years old. Let me tell you a little bit about Clint Walker. Because the first time I saw him was in the movie The Dirty Dozen, but he had a lot broader acting career than that. That's one of my favorite movies, but he's a former merchant seaman, real-life deputy sheriff, as the New York Times reports. He roamed the West as a towering, solitary figure on Cheyenne, the first hour-long Western on television. And apparently he passed away last night in Grass Valley, California. His death at a hospital was confirmed by his daughter, Valerie Walker, who he loved very much, who said the cause was congestive heart failure. He lived in Grass Valley, about 60 miles northeast of Sacramento. Walker also appeared in The Dirty Dozen and other other movies, but he was best known for Cheyenne, which was seen on ABC from 1955 to 1963. Now, many of us, many of you are too young to remember, but that was an absolute blockbuster program, a massive hit. And uh, he was born in Norman, Oklahoma. He was renamed Clint by Jack Warner of Warner Brothers. Played Cheyenne Bodie, a big-hearted man who performed good deeds and fought bad men in his wanderings. He was 6'6". Very, very strong man. Cheyenne was among the first television series produced by Warner Brothers, and it had the lavish look of a big-screen movie. The shooting of the first show's first season began. Mr. Walker confessed to the crew he didn't even know have a, a great deal of experience on horseback. He later recalled the response, you'll either be a good rider or a dead one. There are a few times I wondered which one I was going to be, he said. Many episodes of Cheyenne called for Mr. Walker to be shirtless, revealing a bodybuilder's 48-inch chest, 32-inch waist, and on-screen moments that well, maybe not essential to the plot, help make the handsome, blue-eyed Mr. Walker a star. 6'6". Six, six. He was tall not only in the saddle. One reporter joked that he has snow on his shoulders six months of the year. His size forced him to restrict his movements, to stay within camera range, which could be a challenge during on-screen fights, but he pressed for more of those. I feel action is what I owe the public, he once told an interviewer. When I see a hero yak, yak, yakking, I lose all interest. In 1958, he walked off the set in a dispute over money and movie work, but returned to play Cheyenne until the series ended its run for five years. He was appearing on Cheyenne when he began making films, including Fort Dobbs with Virginia Mayo. Howard Thompson, reviewing that movie for the New York Times, called him about the biggest, finest-looking Western hero ever to sag a horse with a pair of shoulders rivaling King Kong's. 
Mr. Walker also appeared as a guest star on numerous television shows, including the comic, a comic turn on the uh, Lucy show as Lucille Ball's love interest. He had supporting roles in Semino Flowers, a 1964 comedy with Rock Hudson and Doris Day, and None But the Brave, a 1965 war movie with Frank Sinatra, who also directed. And The Dirty Dozen, great, great movie. Released in 1967, he played the meek Samson Posey alongside a crew of hardened military convicts played by Lee Marvin, Ernest Borgnine, Jim Brown, and others who recruited for an assassination mission behind German lines during World War II. His last film was Joe Dante's Small Soldiers in 1998 about high-tech toy soldiers that go on a rampage and so forth. Now, we discussed some of this with uh, Clint on the program. He came close to dying in a freak accident on a ski trip in 1973 when he stumbled, and a ski pole pierced his heart. He survived and recovered quickly. The next year, he returned to television in Kodiak, about an Alaska lawman, but the show was short-lived. Norman Eugene Walker, a.k.a. Clint Walker, was born on May 30, 1927, in Hartford, Illinois. He quit school at 16 to find jobs, first in a local factory, then on riverboats, before making his way to the Merchant Marine, where he worked on the ore ships that plied the Great Lakes. And by the way, this is where he got his strength and his muscles and so forth, he told me. He said working on these ships was enormously hard work. 1948, he married Verna Garver. They had a daughter, Valerie. The family moved to Long Beach, California, where Walker worked as a port security guard and a nightclub bouncer. Then to Las Vegas, where he was a deputy sheriff, providing security at the Sands Hotel. It was there that the actor Van Johnson suggested that he explore acting. Mr. Walker later recalled thinking, I'm not going to get that far carrying a gun and a badge. It doesn't pay that well. If you make movies, you make some pretty good money, plus the bullets aren't real. Clinton Vera Walker divorced in 1968. Mr. Walker married Giselle Hennessy in 1974. She passed away in 1994. In addition to his daughter, he's survived by his current wife, Susan Walker, the very, very lovely lady, as well as a half-sister and a grandson. Hollywood did not initially embrace the newcomer, although he did land a small, uncredited part in the Bowery Boys film, Jungle Gents, in 1954. He was then offered the chance to meet with Cecil B. DeMille about DeMille's coming epic film, The Ten Commandments. On his way to the studio, he recalled, he stopped to help an older woman change a tire. As Mr. Walker told the story, when he got to the meeting, DeMille said sternly, You're late, young man. Mr. Walker recalled thinking, "Uh uh-oh, my career has ended before it began. He explained that he had stopped to help someone on the freeway, to which DeMille responded, Yes, I know all about it. That was my secretary. <laughs> and then Mr. Walker appears in the film as captain of the Sardinian Guards, the movie The Ten Commandments. So, You should also know he was a very solid conservative. When we talked to him both on and off the air, he was very supportive of President Trump. He liked him very, very much. 
He was very, very concerned about where the country was heading. He was also kind of a, a health nut, wasn't he, Mr. Producer? He was always worried about what I was eating. Always worried about what I was eating. In fact, at one point, he sent me a little care package a few years back of all kinds of crackers and stuff and so forth and so on. And we were more than happy to have him on the program, talk about his website and his movies, and, and he was more than happy to talk about the issues that were taking place today. But I just want you to know he was an extremely decent, kind man to me, to Mr. Producer, Rich, to our call screener at the time, Guns, <clears throat> just a very, very nice gentleman, and, uh, and he will be missed by us very much. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. up where we left off yesterday. We're going to have a wonderful guest scheduled. I say scheduled because sometimes people don't show up, but he will. At the bottom of the hour, Professor Stephen Calabrese uh, of Northwestern Law School and a good friend of mine. We worked together with uh, Attorney General Ed Meese in the Reagan Justice Department, and uh, I wanted him to speak to you directly about his opinion that the appointment of Mueller is unconstitutional, an opinion that I strongly agree with, and that I'm expanding upon myself as we, as we speak. Northwestern Law School is where he is the professor. There was an article that came out in Politico, uh, which is really quite remarkable. It came out in Politico late yesterday, and in part, they're saying that, well, it undermines Manafort's lawyer's arguments in front of that judge, T.S. Ellis III in the Virginia courtroom because, uh, well, listen to what they say. Several court filings indicate that when lawyers from Mueller's office appeared in federal court in Alexandria earlier this year, they did so not only as representatives of Mueller's office, but as special assistant United States attorneys attached to the United States attorney's office there. Wow. So basically, they're equivalent of assistant U.S. attorneys. Now, that matters. I'll get to that in a second. As special assistant U.S. attorneys, they are not confined to the scope of the special counsel that the special counsel uh, is acting under. They can potentially have the ability to go outside the scope. They have all the powers and abilities that just a regular U.S. attorney would have. Now, this is the key. The four individuals that they're talking about are assistants to Mr. Mueller, a special counsel. The four individuals have a dual appointment as special assistant United States attorneys. That gives them broader power. That's why they got those appointments. So they can look into things beyond the scope that is provided for in the original appointment of Mr. Mueller. Please, don't let your eyes curl up. Stick with me. Now, according to Politico, because they don't understand the Constitution, and according to lawyers who are commenting on this in the article, because they don't understand the Constitution, and fortunately, Mr. Mueller doesn't understand the Constitution, the fact is 
that this proves the point that Mr. Mueller is an unconstitutional appointment. You see, these four individuals report to Mr. Mueller, ultimately. They had to get Mr. Mueller's approval to receive expanded authority as special assistant United States attorneys. They're his reports. They report to him. And Mr. Mueller would want them to have that authority, which is how they got involved in bank fraud, wire fraud, um, federal agent reporting, issues back to 2003 and 2005 and so forth and so on as part of the special counsel's investigation. Because these four subordinates who report to Mueller really have the authority of an assistant U.S. attorney. So what's that make Mr. Mueller? What's that make Mr. Mueller? Mr. Mueller's authority is enormously broad, as I pointed out yesterday. His initial appointment was very broad. No specific criminal statutes, no specific individuals, no specific organizations, which makes it quite different than past special counsel and past independent counsel under the independent counsel statute, which has since lapsed. He's interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people. He's reviewed hundreds of thousands of documents because he's, he's throwing wide nets looking for stuff. As I said, he's investigating bank fraud, wire fraud issues more than a decade old, having nothing to do with his original appointment. But it doesn't matter because he's a roving U.S. attorney, if you will. He's looking into matters involving numerous countries, not just Russia. So he's a roving U.S. attorney, if you will. That's the way I see him. With enormous power. And now we know that at least four of the individuals who report to him are effectively assistant U.S. attorneys. We learned that today. That's the icing on the cake. What do I mean by that? Remember. The appointments clause of the Constitution requires what we call principal officers of the United States government to be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. That's the appointments clause of Article 2 of the Constitution. Mr. Mueller was appointed by the Deputy Attorney General of the United States acting as the acting Attorney General of the United States. The Deputy Attorney General of the United States had no authority to create such a powerful position and to make such an appointment to somebody with such power as a roving U.S. attorney. As the power of Mr. Mueller has developed over time, the extension of his authority, four of his subordinates, getting essentially assistant U.S. attorney status, moving into all kinds of areas and so forth and so on, not particularized areas, make it abundantly clear to me that Mr. Mueller is a principal officer, not an inferior officer. You know, the federal bureaucracy, as we discussed last night, is filled with hundreds of thousands of inferior officers. I don't mean inferior people, but they're considered inferior officers who do not require nomination by the president or confirmation by the Senate. But a number of officers do. All U.S. attorneys, as an example. The Attorney General, the Deputy Attorney General, the Associate Attorney General, and every Assistant Attorney General, again, requires nomination by the President and confirmation by the Senate. Assistant Secretary of Agriculture, Assistant Secretary of Energy, and up, the deputies, and of course the heads of the agencies, Cabinet Secretaries, all are considered 
principal officers who require nomination by the president and confirmation by the Senate. Why does any of this matter? It matters because what Professor Calabrese is arguing, what I'm arguing in, in extension of what he's written, is that means Mr. Mueller, as it turns out, his appointment is unconstitutional. He's a principal officer. He has enormous power, and his power just keeps expanding, as do the power as does the power of his subordinates, which is his responsibility. So it started off as a very questionable proposition, the nature of the investigation and the lack of specificity of crime, specificity of individuals, specificity of anything. And it's only gotten worse. So I would point out that he is akin to a roving U.S. attorney. Of course, it's not a perfect definition, but it's good enough. And so it does not undermine the ultimate position of Manafort's lawyers or the other lawyers if they grasp what I'm saying. Yes, we can go to the issue of scope. They would lose that potentially. But based on the presentation that Mr. Mueller and his lawyers have made to Judge Ellis, it severely weakens their defense under the Appointments Clause. And to me, that's the kryptonite. And they ought to pursue it. When I come back, Professor Calabrese... With the daily fake news dump pouring through your TV, mobile phones and computers, you may have missed some real news like the recent study in the journal Cell Metabolism. Scientists suspected a correlation between growing rates of obesity and processed foods, but what this study discovered was that these foods also appear to lead people to overeat. Here's the bottom line. You need fresh fruits and vegetables in your diet, which is why I recommend that you start taking Field of Greens by Brickhouse Nutrition. Just one scoop of Field of Greens has a full serving of real USDA-certified organic fruits and vegetables. It helps boost your immunity using antioxidants, prebiotics, and probiotics. This is real food, not some fake supplement lab powder. Just read the nutrition facts panel on the side. Go to BrickhouseLevin.com, that's BrickhouseLevin.com, and you'll get 15% off your first order with the offer code LEVIN. You know you're not going to start cooking fresh fruits and vegetables, so let's not pretend. Just get one full cup of fruits and one full cup of vegetables every day with Field of Greens. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com, BrickHouseLevin.com, offer code LEVIN. If you turn off your radio and open the window, you can probably hear him straight from the studio. Call Mark Levin at 877-381-3811. It's a pleasure to have Professor Steve on my show here. How are you, Steve? Very well, Mark. I wanted to ask you a few questions here. Steve Calabrese and I work together uh, with... uh, Attorney General Ed Meese in the Reagan administration. Steve went on to be a professor at Northwestern Law School. Over the weekend, I believe it was, or maybe Friday, you shared with me and a handful of others an opinion you wrote, a very compelling one in my view, that the appointment of Robert Mueller violates the appointments clause of the Constitution. Can you summarize what you mean by that? Yes. Uh, The Constitution's appointments clause sets up two kinds of officers, principal officers who do important things and must be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, 
and inferior officers who are subordinates who can be appointed by the head of a cabinet department or by some other principal officer. My argument is that special counsel Robert Mueller is uh, more like a U.S. attorney who is a principal officer who has to be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate than he is like an assistant U.S. attorney who is an inferior officer. And so I think that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein committed a grievous mistake and violated the Constitution's Appointments Clause blatantly when he appointed Robert Mueller to be a principal officer when Mueller had not been nominated by President Trump nor confirmed by the Senate. Now, you go through your analysis here, because we've had past special counsel, past independent counsel, and your point here is not like Mueller. That his, that his areas of responsibility investigation are so broad and getting, and I'll make the argument, see if you agree, and getting broader by yeah. the day, including his own staff. Now, we found out that they've been appointed special assistant U.S. attorneys, four of them, uh, so they can go even further afield. And your point is, given the facts, you look at the facts of each case, and given the facts of this case, there's, it's not possible he's an inferior officer. Go ahead and make your point. Yeah. So uh, there have been, in, in Morrison against Olson, Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote an uh, opinion setting out a four-part test to determine whether someone was an inferior officer. And under part two of that test, inferior officers can only perform certain limited duties. And under part three of that test, the officer must be limited in jurisdiction. And overall, the officer cannot exercise too much power. Uh, it's clear that Mueller, in Morrison against Olson, one former government official, Ted Olson, was being prosecuted for one crime, and that's why Rehnquist upheld the prosecution in Morrison against Olson. Mueller, however, is prosecuting 10 to 20 people, including 13 Russian citizens and three Russian corporations, for a multitude of crimes, some of them related to Russia and the campaign, but some of them having nothing to do with Russia and the campaign at all. And in fact, Mueller is behaving like an officer who is more powerful than any of the 96 U.S. attorneys. He's also more famous than any of the 96 U.S. attorneys. Ergo, he has to be a principal officer. He has to be nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. And since he wasn't, his appointment is illegal. Now, there was a piece in Politico, I think I sent it to you this morning, I don't know if you had a chance to read it, but let me just summarize it, I summarized it for the audience earlier, and basically what it says is, look, um, the argument that was made in the Eastern District Federal Court to Judge uh, T.S. Ellis III was that Mr. Mueller is violating the scope of his appointment. And their response is, no, he's not. In fact, we have four special assistant United States attorneys. They have this dual appointment from the Eastern District, the U.S. Attorney's Office, so they can move far afield. Now, while that may defeat the scope argument, Professor Calabrese, yeah. it underscores the point about the violation of the Appointments Clause, does it not? I think it does underscore the point about the violation of the Appointments Clause, and the fact is that those special U.S. attorneys are being directed and controlled by Robert Mueller, who is an unconstitutionally appointed officer. And I think that 
all of the actions that Mueller has taken, the searches he's conducted, his referral of the Michael Cohen matter to the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, I think all of it is unconstitutional, and the evidence he's obtained from those searches and the referral to New York are all fruit of a poisonous tree, which should be excluded from the federal courts in future prosecutions. So all null and void, everything he's done. Everything he's done since May 17, 2017 is null and void, and that information needs to be restored to its private owners as fast as possible. And frankly, after such an egregious violation of the Appointments Clause uh, with the violation of attorney-client privilege that went along with it, it's my view that President Trump should fire Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein because I think this is the most gross abuse of power that I'm aware of in the history of the Justice Department since it was set up after the Civil War. Very interesting. Now, who would have standing... I, I want you to lay this out for the audience. Who would have standing to challenge uh, the uh, appointment? All the defendants, all the witnesses, well, anybody uh, who's subpoenaed. Who receives um, a subpoena or an indictment from Mueller, uh, or as a result of Mueller's referral of the Michael Cohen matter to New York, can raise this issue and raise the constitutional question and bring it before the federal courts. And I think that if this got to the Supreme Court, I feel quite confident that the Supreme Court would hold Mueller's appointment to be unconstitutional. Like our beloved former boss, Attorney General Meese, I think the President and Congress also have a responsibility to uphold the Constitution. And so I think the President can fire Rod Rosenstein and Robert Mueller rather than waiting for the matter to be litigated. But certainly anyone who receives a subpoena or is indicted by Mueller has standing to challenge the legality of Mueller's appointment. Well, the president's going to weigh, obviously, the political considerations and the impeachment of issue. Course. But let me, let me ask you this question. Why is the appointments clause so important, and why is Rosenstein's violation of it so grievous? Well, the Appointments Clause is one of the critical powers that the Constitution gives to the President in that under the Appointments Clause, principal officers have to be nominated by the President subject to Senate confirmation. And the framers at Philadelphia had considered allowing Congress to elect cabinet secretaries or to elect officers and they deliberately decided that would weaken the president too much. And so they put in the appointments clause and gave the president the power to nominate executive principal officers and judges and the Senate the power to advise and consent and confirm them. And when one undermines the appointment clause, one undermines a key presidential power this was shown in Buckley against Vallejo, the campaign finance law case. Congress originally provided that the Federal Elections Commission would consist of two members picked by the president, two members picked by the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and two members picked by the president pro tempore of the Senate. And the Supreme Court tossed that out as unconstitutional and said that undermines the Appointments Clause, which is a fundamental protection of presidential power. And so that's what I think is implicated here. Um, 
there can be inferior officers who are appointed by heads of department or by other principal officers. But as Justice Scalia explained in Edmund against the United States, to be an inferior officer, you not only have to have a boss, but you have to have a boss who is supervising and directing your work. And here, as best we can tell, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein is not, by design, supervising and directing the work that Robert Mueller is doing, which is why Robert Mueller is more like a U.S. attorney than an assistant U.S. attorney, and therefore why his appointment is unconstitutional. And, you know, uh, I shared your piece with uh, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. He was very impressed with it. And he shot back a 2013 quote from Scalia in an interview he did. I believe it was in the New Yorker magazine. And Justice Scalia said the most wrenching decision for him was Morrison versus Olson. Now, remember, I want to explain to the audience. This is the 1988 decision. It was, I believe it was eight to one. Yes, it or was. was it, it was eight to one. Scalia was the only dissent. Justice, the Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote the opinion, uh, and that was the decision upholding this independent counsel statute. Right. And and you're correct. That was much more narrow than what we have here with the special counsel. But Scalia said it was very wrenching, not only because Rehnquist wrote it. He said Brennan could have written opinion, same opinion, or Brennan's opinion would have made it may have actually been better. But he said, the problem here is you're taking the power of prosecution away from the president of the United States and handing it off to some citizen. Right. It would be as though uh, somebody took President Trump's power to veto or his commander-in-chief power and gave it to Robert Mueller. You just can't do that under the Constitution. I mean, the Constitution places the veto power and the commander-in-chief power with the president, and it places the power to act as a U.S. attorney or a principal officer, either in the U.S. attorneys or in the deputy attorney general, and not in some private citizen who's an inferior officer to a principal officer who's deliberately not looking at or supervising what the inferior is doing. Well, I think you've made a major contribution to the republic, my friend. And I've been uh, pressing this point that you wrote. If you don't mind, I've been expanding on certain aspects of it, too. And we are going to uh, link to it on my social sites. I've asked our friends at Conservative Review to post it as well. And I hope all over the country this is done so we can make this case and press for it. Your point is, look, what's going on here is disastrous for the president. But it's disastrous for the republic. We continue to break down these walls, the walls of separation between the branches of government and undermine presidential authority here. Totally undermine presidential authority. Also harass and impose enormous legal bills on innocent individuals who had the misfortune of having worked in a presidential campaign for Donald Trump. And also we've seen a violation of attorney-client privilege, which is one of the sacred civil liberties that we have always held uh, to be of central importance. And uh, Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein has completely destroyed attorney-client privilege by referring them, taking the Mueller referral and passing it on to the Southern District of New York. And that's a huge loss, which the ACLU ought to be complaining about, but is not because it's a Republican president's ox who's getting gored this time around. But 
this is a precedent that we don't want to set for the future and that we need to undo. And it's one that I know our mutually admired former boss, Attorney General Meese, would very much want to see corrected. Professor Stephen Calabrese of the Northwestern Law School, much appreciated, my friend. You take care of yourself. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on your show. All right, Steve. God bless. Pretty clear, I think, don't you think, Mr. Producer? And you won't get that on any other talk show. And that's why we dig deeply here. This is very, very important. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. All right, we're going to link to Professor Calabrese's opinion in a moment. Put it up on Mark Levin's show Facebook, Mark Levin's show Twitter. Uh, so you all can have it. I hope you'll read it, and I hope you'll share it with everyone you know, because I think it's crucially important. Well, Mr. Producer, I would love to do a live read right now. The problem is my damn computer is all screwed up. So um, if you can hear me, could you please send it to me? He just did. Okay, hold on, everybody. Just one moment. I'm looking for this. I need to do business. We are in business. All right, here we go. You know, more than uh, one million children became victims of identity theft in 2017. And families paid, listen to this sum, $540 million out of their pockets to cover the cost of the fraud. Kids' identities are worth tons on the black market. Thieves open accounts and parents don't find out for years, often when they apply for financial aid for college. It's a serious, serious problem. Now, with school and medical records now digitized, even young kids routinely online, the risk is growing faster than ever. But you don't need to worry because you can protect your family and yourself with My ID Care. My ID Care covers you for the nine types of identity theft, including child ID theft with great family plans. And they provide a 100% identity recovery guarantee or your money back. That's the difference between my ID care and the other guys. And you need top-tier identity recovery, and they stand by it with their guarantee. You and your kids need protection, and you need my ID care, which is why we've made them one of our great sponsors on this program. Learn more and get 15% off at myidcare.com slash mark, promo code mark. That's myidcare.com slash mark. Promo code Mark. One more time because this is very, very important. MyIDCare.com slash Mark. Promo code Mark. All right. We're not going to take a call this hour, but we will take calls next hour. What we learned in Politico, which is a left-wing site by Josh Gersten, but Josh Gersten didn't learn it. Uh, What we learned here is that you and I and the professor are the only ones who fully understand this. Politico was basically gushing that, wait a minute, that Judge Ellis in Virginia, he said he wondered if Mueller had and his uh, prosecutors have gone beyond the scope of their appointment. And since we've now learned that four of these prosecutors got a dual appointment, that their special assistant United States attorneys with special appointments from the Eastern District U.S. Attorney's Office in Virginia 
Well, then, they're, they're free to go much further afield than the actual scope that the deputy attorney gave his special counsel. Now, the problem with this, ladies and gentlemen, is that these people report to Mr. Mueller. He's their boss. They coordinate with him. He makes the final decision. Mr. Mueller, the special counsel. So at least these four out of 17 prosecutors that Mueller specifically and personally hired, uh, they act as, if you will, assistant United States attorneys, as special assistant United States attorneys. Therefore, Mr. Mueller is going not just beyond the scope of the original appointment, but Mr. Mueller and his appointment by Mr. Rosenstein, more importantly, violates the United States Constitution. The framers of your Constitution didn't want such powerful individuals to be so easily appointed. They wanted the President involved, and they wanted the Senate involved. In the case of Mr. Mueller, Mr. Rosenstein usurped the power of the President in making the appointment. That's strike number one. And strike number two is that the Senate has never had an opportunity to confirm or or not confirm Mr. Mueller. That's the position. That's my position. I agree with Stephen Calabrese. I've taken it a few steps further. That's just the way it goes. And I'll be right back. If you have a moment, I want you all to go to BrickHouseLevin.com. Just go there and click on the Buy Now button so you can read the reviews. Over 1,200 five-star reviews, I might add. But this one caught my attention from Steve in Denver. I'm upset with Mark because he's got me hooked on Field of Greens. What a great product. Thank you, BrickHouse, for your amazing product and great customer service. I'm a monthly subscriber, and I won't live without it. And you're welcome, Steve. And subscribing is smart. You save money that way. Field of Greens is made with real USDA organic fruits and vegetables and helps boost your immunity using antioxidants, prebiotics, and probiotics. Plus, they offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com or call 833-RING-BHN. Get 15% off your first order with promo code LEVIN. That's BrickHouseLevin.com or call 833-RING-BHN, promo code LEVIN. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. We have linked... Uh, to Professor Calabrese's opinion piece uh, on Mark Levin Show Facebook, Mark Levin Show Twitter. And you'll see that I've expanded from that as well, but it's a really brilliant piece. He's also written in The Hill a much uh, more shorter piece, truncated piece. And he also mentioned something else that's interesting. Did you know that Presidents George Washington... John Adams and Thomas Jefferson all gave orders to federal prosecutors to bring prosecutions? And that Thomas Jefferson ordered a prosecution stopped? Did you know that? Now, President Trump isn't ordering anybody to be prosecuted. 
And he's not ordering that any prosecution stop. All President Trump did is he met with his deputy attorney general, his FBI director, and insisted that they investigate uh, activities that took place in the executive branch, of which he is in charge, uh, with respect to his campaign and his transition. He is clearly free to do that. All this howling by the buffoons in the media, all this howling by the buffoons of the Democrat Party, buffoons like Sally Yates, buffoons like James the Clap, and the rest. You need to understand how out of control and over the edge these people really are. Partisan ideological hacks filled with vile, poison hate. And if you follow them, you'll follow the republic right over the edge. So presidents George Washington, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson, those are our first three presidents, all gave orders to federal prosecutors to bring prosecutions. And Jefferson ordered a prosecution stopped. Donald Trump's not doing any of that. Again, just for the slow of hearing liberals out there. Donald Trump hasn't ordered any prosecutions, and he hasn't ordered any prosecutions. Stop. He's told the FBI and the Department of Justice they need to find out if his campaign was spied upon and any other shenanigans that may have taken place, or worse, of course, uh, with respect to his campaign. So you should feel very comfortable in knowing that what the president has asked and directed is well within our presidential traditions and well within our constitutional system. What was done to him and his campaign are not. Are not. Now you can see in our discussion yesterday and today about the appointments clause how thoroughly abusive this whole process has been to the president. Thoroughly abusive. How Rod Rosenstein is a constitutional illiterate. How Robert Mueller is a constitutional illiterate. How James Comey is a constitutional illiterate. Now, in my view, there's no question they don't care about it. They don't care about it. These are bureaucrats. These are men who've spent their entire lifetimes, pretty much, as federal investigators or bureaucrats. Their understanding of the Constitution relates to a handful of clauses in the Bill of Rights, pretty much. And at a relatively superficial level. It's a process they go through. You know, probable cause, due process, subpoenas, warrants, judges. Fine. None of them know a damn thing about the appointments clause. None of them. None of them know a damn thing about the impeachment clause. And they certainly haven't taken the time to educate themselves. Robert Mueller does not have the power under the Department of Justice official opinions to indict a sitting president. Nor does he have the power to force a sitting president in front of a grand jury as no prosecutor has even attempted such a thing with a president of the United States. Nor does he have the power to use a jury to convict a president of the United States. Mr. Mueller 
no prosecutor for that matter, has the power to circumvent the constitutional authority granted to Congress in determining whether a president remains in office or not, specifically the Senate. Mr. Mueller, nor any jury, they do not have the power to usurp the power of the Constitution, which grants to the Senate and only the Senate, no other body, no other individual, nothing, the power to remove a president, and the Senate has never removed a president. Mr. Mueller has taken us to the brink. He's taken us to the brink, which is why he needs to be fought. He needs to be opposed every step of the way. Every step of the way. So in addition to the impeachment clause of the Constitution, which the framers actually took a lot of time on, and they were focused almost exclusively on the presidency, not other principal officers in inferior constitutional positions, they were focused on the presidency and the president. They would be shocked at what's taking place here. The second point, the fact of Mr. Mueller's existence as a special counsel under the, under the circumstances of this matter, in which Mr. Rosenstein gave him essentially a blank slate, he continues to expand that blank slate, <clears throat> he does not really oversee the, the daily activities of Mr. Mueller as special counsel. Mr. Mueller really only reports to Mr. Rosenstein, really it's a paper report, in terms of, okay, I'd like to expand my investigation, and he has a rubber stamp and stamps it. The fact that he can be removed by Mr. Rosenstein is not good enough. An assistant attorney general can be removed by an associate or a deputy attorney general. That's not the test. The test is the actual power being exercised by this official. Mr. Mueller is exercising more power that has more direct effect on the presidency of the United States than all the United States attorneys combined. Moreover, we now know that four of his subordinates, and this could not have happened without his approval, in fact, he probably promoted the idea, have had their power expanded by receiving a dual appointment as special assistant United States attorneys in Virginia the Eastern District of Virginia, the U.S. Attorney's Office. And Mr. Mueller did that with his four subordinates so he could further expand their power, their ability to investigate Manafort, bank fraud, wire fraud, whether he registered or didn't as a federal agent, and on and on and on. None of which, of course, is in the scope of his appointment. But then Politico, and perhaps this Judge Ellis, will turn this upside down and come to the wrong conclusion. And their conclusion may well be, well, then you see the scope is so broad that really it does encompass all these things. And, of course, the argument by Mueller's office is, look, I got these four guys. They're also essentially assistant United States attorneys, and, of course, they can investigate these things. What the judge needs to comprehend, and I don't know that he will. I don't know that he's particularly smart. What the judge needs to comprehend and what the lawyers representing these individuals need to comprehend is this underscores the unconstitutionality of Mr. Mueller's appointment, given how he's exercising extraordinary power, given how Mr. Rosenstein is not really effectively or substantively managing him, 
the initial appointment of Mr. Mueller was broad enough. No specific statutes, let alone criminal statutes, no specific individuals, just a broad right to look into stuff. And then it's gotten broader since then, and now we know that four of his people have in fact been uh, uh, been appointed as special assistant U.S. attorneys and have even more power. So a direct challenge to Mr. Mueller's appointment is certainly in line. And Professor Calabrese thinks that what Rod Rosenstein did is the gravest violation of the Constitution that he can think of of any official who has served at the Department of Justice. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. I am uh, going to be on Hannity tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time. He's asked me to come on to discuss this issue, and I will. Uh, at some length, we want to push this issue out uh, so that more and more people in the country are aware of it. And members of Congress can start asking Mr. Rosenstein and calling attention to it with Mr. Mueller. I've said a long time ago now, the president, the Constitution is the president's friend here. The Constitution is the president's friend. And I mean it. It is his friend. He's on the right side of the Constitution, in my opinion. And if you understand the Constitution, you study it, and a lot of federal prosecutors do not, outside what they do every day. A lot of former federal prosecutors do not. This is what I do. This is what some others do. You know, we old Mies guys who worked in the Mies Justice Department of the Reagan administration, we're not so stupid. We know what we're talking about. We know what we're doing. Sam Alito came out of that Justice Department. Sam Alito. Antonin Scalia came out of that Justice Department. John Bolton came out of that Justice Department. A number of people who litigated in the 2000 election on the chads and so forth. Chuck Cooper, famous litigator, came out of that Justice Department. The Reagan Justice Department. Ted Olson came out of that Justice Department. Again, the Reagan Justice Department. Ken Starr came out of that Justice Department. So many federal judges at the district and circuit court levels came out of that Justice Department. And so when I talk about these things, these are the kinds of people I dealt with. These are the kinds of people who, who we would debate back and forth on a number of issues, those of whom I, those whom I knew. Doug Ginsburg, for a long time he was a circuit judge in, in Washington, D.C., headed the antitrust division. I could go on and on and on. Just a remarkable group of not just lawyers, but originalists, thinkers, scholars, became judges and professors. In one case, a talk show host, but you get the point. And so what's very interesting is, and I hope, that 
Mr. Flynn's lawyers are listening. All the other uh, people who've been dragged into this real, this, this nightmare, this absolute nightmare. The president's lawyers, <laughs> excuse me, the president's lawyers, among others, I hope they're all listening. And let me suggest to you they are. And let me suggest to you that the case that we're making starting yesterday, today with Professor Calabrese, that I'm pushing out on my social sites, that has showed up on Conservative Review, Right Scoop, CNS.com, and should show up on every single conservative site, should be showing up on the Drudge Report and Lucianne and all these other major sites. I don't know that they are. Let me suggest to you that this is the the strongest, best argument, because it's constitutional, that can be made and has been made, respecting Mr. Mueller and Mr. Rosenstein. Now, some of you have written and said, well, if it's so brilliant and so far, why didn't you say so early on? I'll tell you why. Because you had to see how this appointment developed. You have to see how these people conduct themselves, how they keep expanding their authority, how their authority has expanded for them in order to determine whether or not under the factual situation here and the environment here, it's a violation of the appointments clause. Because remember, there's two kinds of appointments, a principal officer and an inferior officer. And the Supreme Court, in a 1988 case, Morrison versus Olson, upheld the independent counsel statute and concluded that the independent counsel was an inferior officer because, in that case, they were focused on one defendant and one factual situation. That is not Robert Mueller. That's not Robert Mueller. Robert Mueller has no effective oversight because... Really, as a condition of his appointment, Rosenstein has appointed a special counsel, and he's not going to interfere with him. I don't know that Rosenstein has rejected any request from the special counsel to expand his authority. How did these four prosecutors under Mueller come to expand their authority by getting a dual appointment, not only as his prosecutors, but the Eastern District of Virginia? How did they get those appointments? Well, Mueller pushed for it. They couldn't have gotten those appointments without Mueller wanting them to get those appointments. And if they are effectively assistant United States attorneys, well, Mr. Mueller is effectively a United States attorney. And every single United States attorney has to be nominated by the president to the United States Senate and confirmed or not by the United States Senate. The deputy attorney general who's the acting attorney general for these purposes, since the actual attorney general recused himself, he doesn't have the power to do that. He's not the president. He's not the Senate. Now, this should bring in clear focus the outrageousness and the absurdity of members of the Senate, particularly Republicans, several of whom have voted to, quote-unquote, protect Robert Mueller. The chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who's not a lawyer, who's been there since, you know, since Cicero was uh, in Rome, Charles Grassley, he was one of the ones, one of the four, who voted to protect Robert Mueller from the President of the United States. Not only is that an absurdity, a clear violation of separation of powers, Mr. Grassley, you have no power to tell the President how to do that. It's none of your damn business, as a matter of fact. But they seek to protect Mueller, who is undermining our constitutional system. 
who's undermining the impeachment clause of the Constitution and the appointments clause of the Constitution. Now, Mr. Grassley's been around a long time. I don't know how many terms he's in. Seven? Puts his left hand on the Bible, raises his right hand into the sky, and swears to uphold the Constitution and be faithful to it. Well, he needs to understand the Constitution in order to uphold it and be faithful to it. And let me suggest to you right now, he does not. Or he wouldn't have cast such a ludicrous vote. Any Republican in the House or Senate who you hear say we need to vote to protect Mueller is undermining the Appointments Clause of the Constitution and the Impeachment Clause of the Constitution because they are cowards and they're they're constitutional illiterates. In fact, Congress should be doing the opposite, as I wrote several weeks ago on my social sites. Congress should be holding hearings into these constitutional questions And their first witness should be Mr. Mueller, and their second witness should be Mr. Rosenstein. And they should be forced to explain the impeachment clause of the Constitution in those two memos of the Justice Department, and forced to explain the appointments clause of the Constitution. I'll be right back. The Mark Levin Show. Live and national at 877-381-3811. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. Now, ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, you, my listeners, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Levin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash L-E-V-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash Levin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Let's take a few calls here. All right, let's go to, I'm pulling it up. Let's see. Uh, Jim, Las Vegas, Nevada, the great K-Don, K-D-W-N. Go. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for the education. And uh, I'm a leftist, and I appreciate this kind of information. All right. Uh, I have a brief comment and a brief question. Uh, Mm -hmm. The comment is it's very telling that they did not want any of this to come out. The only reason we're knowing any of this is that I just pried it out of them. That what now? Who pried it out of them? Yeah, that judge said he wants to know the scope of the charge in court. I don't think we would know any of this if he hadn't. I I agree. Why do you think they were so uh, unwilling to make that information public before you get to your question? uh, Because I think partly it's the reflex of deep state operators. Uh, it's, Mm -hmm. It's just infuriating to me. That as a citizen, I can't know what a prosecutor is being tra- what his uh, his uh, charge is to, to it's do. It's absurd. So, 
absolutely absurd. I mean, they're still public officials. What's the big secret? That's right. That's All right, right. and you're a leftist, and you believe this. All right, what's your question? Oh, and and uh, uh, I remember the term darkness at noon. Mm-hmm. Stalin showed leftists the path into the darkness at noon. It seems that other leftists that would go along with a prosecutor that has a secret mission uh, are choosing... Are, are, are you a leftist or a libertarian? Leftist. I know it All doesn't right. sound like... It. Actually, a Marxist, but uh, at any rate, my question is... Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> I know. It sounds strange, doesn't it? Hey, I really like your long readings of passages from Tocqueville and uh, Bastiat and Madison. Well, I'm going to send you a copy of Rediscovering Americanism so you can read my long passages in there, too. But anyway, go ahead. Okay. And my question is, you may not want to give legal advice to the other side, but uh, I'm curious how you would expect them to answer the constitutional issue that you're raising. My own guess would be that it would turn on uh, what constitutes supervision. Right. Well, I, I think what they would try and do is downplay his... A supersized authority and try and define him as an inferior uh, officer. I think they would also try to to spin some of the Supreme Court decisions, particularly the decision of Morrison versus Olson in 1988, where the court concluded that Morrison, the independent counsel, was an inferior officer. As to your point about supervision, look, there's always going to be supervision. An assistant attorney general is supervised. Uh, the Deputy Attorney General is supervised, and the Assistant Secretary of Agriculture is supervised. U.S. attorneys are supervised. The issue is whether they are supervised in a way that is on a daily basis, on a detailed basis, on a regularized basis, and also you look at the facts at hand, in any particular case, the kind of authority that they're exercising. And so I think it's a winner uh, for the argument that I'm making because you can, that Mr. Mueller is more akin to a U.S. attorney than he is to an assistant U.S. attorney uh, and more akin maybe to an assistant secretary of this set or the other. And the power that he exercises, as it turns out, is quite enormous. Yeah, again, <laughs> the question of supervision isn't that clear-cut. And the last thing I'd like to no, say... No, 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 it's, it is actually fairly clear-cut. For instance, if you have an individual who, a secretary, a um, a deputy assistant secretary who reports to the assistant secretary, they have to have, they have meetings every every morning and every evening to go over their their schedules and so forth and so on. That's an inferior employee, a chief of staff, an administrative assistant, um, people of that sort. A an individual, a special counsel, who is appointed for the purpose of being independent from the Justice Department. Uh, who is overseen by an individual who basically rubber stamps his work and is not involved in the particulars of his of his investigations and prosecutions? Um, I think it is pretty pretty straightforward. I hope you're right. And my so last do I. thing I'd like to say: I I can't control judges, whatever the hell they do. Anyway, go ahead. No. Um, the the last thing I'd like to say is there's an upside to all of this, and this is a tremendous civics lesson to the world. Can you imagine what people living in Pyrenees must be seeing or uh, thinking when they see the, the citizens rising up against the secret police and uh, uh, <coughs> Clapper, Clapper and Brennan uh, raked over the coals? And Well, I, I, they haven't been raked over the coals. Hold on one second. Okay. All right. I, they have not been raked over the coals. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I would think what they're saying is America does not really have an independent uh, media of the kind that uh, are, uh, are contemplated 
in the First Amendment. In fact, we have what I uh, nomenclature that I use is a Praetorian Guard media. So I, I think what they would say is, what the hell is the United States doing to itself? Maybe, okay. I kind of disagree, but I, I think I've taken more well, time. But you're a Marxist, too, so, you know, we think you, differently. <laughs> yeah, and thank you for the book. Don't hang up. Don't hang up. Let's try and do a little bit of re-education. Not of the sort the Chinese are doing to Muslims. Have you read that, Mr. Producer? The Chinese are rounding up Muslims by the tens of thousands, putting them in re-education camps, a.k.a. concentration camps, forcing them to eat pork, forcing them to do that which their religion rejects. And you know what's interesting? There hasn't been a single meeting at the UN Human Rights Council condemning China. Not one. Why is that, do you think? Bob, Bloomington, North Carolina, Sirius Satellite. How are you? Hey, Mark. Uh, this is a real honor. I've been listening to you since you were on Hannity back in 2003. Wow, a long time ago. A long time ago. And I bought, you know, Liberty and Tyranny and, uh, Thank you. and Rediscovering America. Uh, I think they should be in a college course. If I'm a professor, that's what I teach. <laughs> oh, you're a college teacher? No, I would if I was a, a professor. Oh, oh. If I had a, if I had a well, PhD, I would teach those courses. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. But I had a question. Um, I was. I said, is the special prosecutor constitutional? I looked it up in an archive in the New York Times. I was. You were in justice in '88, weren't you? Yeah, that was the end of it, but near the end. And yeah. they had this 7-1 Rehnquist, and Scalia was the, the one. It was uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist. It was the Morrison versus Olson decision in 1988, and the only dissenter was Scalia. I may be mistaken. No, but you're correct. What's your okay. question? Well, was that was is a special con- uh, back then? Was that was all right? This that was court? under the that was a challenge to the independent counsel statute by uh, Ted Olson who at that point was a private citizen. Morrison was the independent counsel. Uh, and the issue of the constitutionality of the independent counsel was litigated. And the Supreme Court ruled 7-1 to one that it's constitutional. Now you have to read the decision and figure out how they came to that conclusion. And they came to that conclusion essentially because Morrison was investigating one person for one supposed act, that is uh, the failure to turn over documents and so forth, uh, and I feel bad for Ted Olson because he really was an, a target here, just abused and so forth. But that's beside our point here. Uh, so you look at that appointment and you look at what she, Morrison's responsibility, what her responsibilities were. Okay, that statute has lapsed. And I don't agree with that Supreme Court decision, but it doesn't matter. Then you look at this appointment of a special counsel. Uh, there was no specific statute provided, let alone a criminal statute. There were no specific individuals uh, that uh, Mueller, in his his assignment, was given to investigate. Very, very broad areas, and those areas have gotten even broader. And then on top of that, as I said, you look at these four officials we found out uh, just in the last several hours, who have dual appointments, who act, in effect, as assistant U.S. attorneys. They call them special assistant U.S. attorneys. So this really factually speaking, almost has nothing to do with the Supreme Court decision in 1988, except when they defined inferior officers. And the Chief Justice Rehnquist gave four elements of that, two of them are relevant here, uh, that do apply. And when you apply those two elements 
to Mueller. Uh, he's a principal officer and thereby requires uh, a, conf- a nomination by the president and confirmation by the Senate. Can I have one, one question? Yeah. Yeah. Now, what I read that was the Supreme Court saying that Congress had the right to, to appoint a special prosecutor. Was that within their purview under the Constitution? Well, Congress didn't appoint a special prosecutor. They wrote a okay. statute and laid out a process by which a special prosecutor would be appointed. But Congress uh, doesn't do that, no. Can I tell you one more thing? However, the court did. And what Scalia said, this special court that was set up under the statute, and what Scalia said, rightly so, is you've just taken the power of prosecution away from the president and given it to another body. And I believe he was quite right. But that that process that that uh, does not exist today. Go ahead. No, I was okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And uh, I, I was going to say, all of my progressive friends, I always tell them, they say, "How can you be a conservative?" I say, I, I, "I mimic what you say: individual liberty, personal responsibility, private property." And they go, "Well, uh, you're very kind." And and they go, "Well, that's not really you know sinister." And I go, "Yeah, you're right." <laughs> All right, Bob. Thank you for your call, my friend. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. You know, one of the things we never talk about, I never hear anybody talk about is President Trump's civil liberties. You know he's still a United States citizen, right? Let's touch on that in a little bit. You know, I've had my shared mechanics calling me, saying they found something wrong with what needs replacing when I've taken my car in for an oil change. Those uh, surprise high repair bills are quite terrible, aren't they? Especially when you're not covered by a manufacturer's warranty and you're paying out of your own pocket to fix them. That's why I recommend extended vehicle protection from CarShield. Now, if your car has 5,000 to 150,000 miles, CarShield can save you from paying for high repair bills. Placing your engine. You ever try and replace an engine? <laughs> it's a lot. Or even a simple sensor? That can cost thousands. When you're protected by CarShield, you can have your favorite mechanic or dealership fix your car. It's your choice. CarShield also provides 24-7 roadside assistance and rent a car while yours is being fixed for free. Get covered by the ultimate in extended vehicle protection. I want to encourage you to get CarShield. Call 800-CAR-6100 and mention code LEVIN or visit carshield.com and use code LEVIN and you'll save 10%. That's carshield.com or 800-CAR-6100 and use code LEVIN, L-E-V-I-N, to save 10%. A deductible may apply. What about citizen Donald J. Trump and his civil liberties? Does he have civil liberties? You would think he doesn't. If you watch MSLSD or the Constipated News Network, CNN, if you would listen to James the Clap and Jim Book Salesman Comey or uh, John, I voted for a communist, Brennan, or any of them. Or any of them. Even if you listen to some Republicans and how they talk. Like Trey Gowdy in the past. You know, uh, if you didn't rob the bank, you shouldn't have any problem being interviewed. I wouldn't want him as my lawyer, would you? Real knucklehead in my humble opinion, with all due respect. 
president has civil liberties too. As a matter of fact, this was pointed out. That's why the decision was made, at least as I interpret it, and the Department of Justice interprets it on impeachment, that a president is too busy to actually effectively defend himself and to embrace the provisions of the Constitution that protect all citizens, whether it's due process, subpoenas, probable cause for warrants, a speedy trial, and so forth and so on. When you are preparing to defend your liberty, your life, your private property against the state, against government, you need to be focused all the time. And, of course, when you're president of the United States, you need to be focused all the time on being president of the United States. Now, what's particularly invidious here, what's particularly pernicious here, is that this unconstitutional prosecutor, Mueller, appointed unconstitutionally by the Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein, is doing everything possible to distract the President of the United States. The media, the lapdogs of an unconstitutional prosecutor, the media collectively revealing themselves as embracing tyranny. Tyranny. The media are doing the same thing. Everything they can to distract the President of the United States. Extremely dangerous. I'm not saying presidents who violate the law shouldn't be held to account. Presidents who interfere with a court case, a civil court case, where they are the defendant, shouldn't be held to account. I'm not saying that in the least. But this president didn't do anything. They've got nothing. Because he didn't do anything. He didn't interfere with a civil case while he was president on the civil side. It's so clear he didn't commit any crimes, they can't even name a criminal statute that they're investigating related to him. They just throw up phrases like obstruction of justice. In the most absurd manner, involving a president exercising his usual duties. And I want to repeat to you, as I said, as Professor Calabrese points out in a piece he has in The Hill, I want to repeat to you that Presidents George Washington, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson, our first three presidents, founders all, gave orders to federal prosecutors to bring prosecutions. And Jefferson ordered a prosecution stopped. President Trump hasn't ordered the prosecution of anything or anyone. And he hasn't ordered any prosecution be stopped. He asked his deputy attorney general and his FBI director, they report to him, to get to the bottom of what took place in the campaign against his campaign. He has every right to ask. And yet, have you listened to the media on this? Sally Yates, the fool who was Deputy Attorney General of the United States, it's frightening, isn't it? James Clapper, who's barely articulate, who sounds like he's in a constant state of drunkenness, even though I'm not saying he is. I would, I would never say that. Or John Brennan, in the right light, looks very much like Lenin, in my humble opinion. And Jim Comey, probably the dumbest guy ever to be director of the FBI, truly. Says the dumbest things. Does the dumbest things. President of the United States is an impotent, 
An American citizen who is president of the United States isn't required, because he's president of the United States, to, to ignore what's taking place. Moreover, the president, as president, isn't required to ignore what's taking place within his administration or what took place in the prior administration. Nothing the president done, has done is untoward, is unseemly, let alone unethical or criminal. I'll be right back. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. I will be on Hannity TV on the Fox News Channel. 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Uh, I want you to know the numbers have come in for the Sunday night programs. And once again, Life, Liberty, and Levin, 10 p.m. Eastern, thanks to you all, was uh, number one in its slot, beating CNN and MSNBC combined. And really, uh, one of the most popular shows, certainly in uh, night primetime on Sunday, on Fox now, you won't read that reported anywhere. You won't see it on any websites anywhere. Uh, but I'm letting you know that uh, you're enjoying the show, you're watching the show, and I'm enjoying the show, and I want to thank you very, very much, very much, uh, for your participation in it. I want to get to a few other issues here, too. I saw this the other day, and I wanted to circle back. Peace in the, uh, in the loathsome Boston Globe. Former New Orleans mayor presented with JFK Award for removing Confederate statues by Danny McDonald, a son of the Deep South who removed icons of the Confederacy from his city, was honored as politically courageous last Sunday night at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library Museum. Former New Orleans mayor Mitch Landrieu was chosen to receive this year's John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award for spearheading the removal of four Confederate monuments in his city. The award, established by members of the Kennedy family to honor JFK after his 1963 assassination, recognized and celebrates, quote, the quality of political courage that he admired most, according to the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum. Now, I got to thinking about this. I was over in Israel, and somebody brought this up to me, and I can't remember who, but I did get to thinking about it, too. There's an enormous amount of history. I think my friend Zev brought it up. An enormous amount of history in Israel. Much of the history is horrific. What the Babylonians did to the Jews... Later, what the Romans did to the Jews. What was done to the Christians. And we have these uh, archaeologists who work throughout the country of Israel looking for ancient remains. The history of the place. And it goes back thousands and thousands of years. 
You know, folks, it's one thing of conquering armies, destroy cities and destroy statues and do all that sort of thing. But it's very unusual for a country to start destroying its own history. We're destroying our own history. Whether it's good, bad, indifferent, the good, the bad, and the ugly, we're destroying our own history. And we're giving awards to people for courage who are destroying our history. It's incredible to me to watch these statues and these monuments being destroyed or removed or covered up. Nobody's saying you have to like any of them. In fact, you might despise them all. So what? It's something that took place over a 100, 150 years ago. You don't start destroying these statues. Okay, Mark, well, some of these were put in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Fine. Doesn't mean we would put them up today, but it doesn't mean you take them down today. It doesn't mean you destroy them. That's American history. Now, ironically and oddly enough, the figures who they take down, their statues, their, uh, their likenesses and so forth and so on, that's all we hear about when you're taught history in our universities and colleges. Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, on and on and on. Longstreet. That's all you hear about. And yet, you're not allowed to look at it. So, here we have the former mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, didn't do anything courageous. It was gutless. Takes down four Confederate statues and he gets the John F. Kennedy Award from the Presidential Library Museum, the JFK Presidential Library Museum, for destroying history. For destroying history. Do you know why most of the camps... Germany, Poland, other countries in Europe, most of the death camps, certainly most of the more active death camps are still in existence in those countries. To remember the history. To remember what took place there. And the survivors, their surviving victims are among those who insist that they remain. So the world never forgets. And we come to our country, and we have politicians who are being what politicians are, political, and they're getting awards for being courageous, for taking down parts of American history. It's incredible. It's, it is grotesque to me. Absolutely grotesque. And I want to hit something else that I guarantee you is not being discussed. I mean, I can't listen to all these shows. I'm talking about in the so-called mainstream media, which is not mainstream, unless we're all left-wing kooks. It is the abject racism 
and racism tied to violence that has reared its, its ugly head again in South Africa. But this time, it's different. It's different. More than 200 farmers from South Africa have applied for humanitarian visas in Australia after allegedly suffering attacks for being white, according to the Australian Home Affairs Ministry. News reports emerged earlier this year revealing that white farmers in South Africa had faced persecution after the country's government approved a new law allowing for the confiscation of their lands, which would be transferred to black citizens. And it goes on. Have you heard anything about this? I'm certainly not uh, defending the apartheid that took place in South Africa or any other part of Africa, for that matter. But, you know, some of these families have been there four or five hundred years. Boers is what they're called. Their ancestry. But this let's get even stuff. Zimbabwe, formerly Rhodesia, South Africa today. You're not even allowed to talk about it. You're not even allowed to talk about it. You know, racism is racism, ladies and gentlemen. And racism tied to violence is racism tied to violence. And so these people are having to escape, many of them for their lives. Because they've elected a a radical Marxist government in South Africa. As they did in what is now Zimbabwe. Not a word about it. Because not only doesn't anyone in the United States give a damn about it. If you bring it up, they'll sell you. They deserve what they're getting. They deserve what they're getting. And yet... And yet, when the apartheid government eventually fell, the argument, the promise, the belief was there'd be a democracy with a rule of law, respecting the rights of all people, regardless of color. And that's not happening, is it? And nobody gives a damn, do they? No, they don't. I'll be right back. Mark People are surmising, columnists and others. When did this surveillance of Trump world actually begin? When did this surveillance actually begin? And people are trying to figure this out. One being more clever than the next. Some who are actually clever trying to figure it out. And people are concluding it had to be before the Steele dossier was even presented. And here's what I'm telling them off the air. I don't know if we'll ever know, but I can tell you how we would know. We go back to this unmasking issue that's all that's been all but ignored. The fact of the matter is, in the last two years of the Obama administration, there was a frenzied effort at surveillance and the unmasking of American citizens. John Solomon wrote an incredible piece on this, looking at the statistics. 
Remember, that's Lieutenant General Flynn. They unmasked him. That's how they learned that he had actually had a discussion with the Russian ambassador. I don't know that we'll ever know. But the fact is that this started as a counterintelligence operation because there was no criminal predicate. That Susan Rice was unmasking people. Samantha Power at the UN was unmasking people. Others in the Obama administration unmasking people. We've never gotten to the bottom of this. This is an area that's kind of collecting dust. And yet at one point, we talked about it at great length, and Devin Nunes was raising it too. But it seems to just sit there. So let me put my marker there. What I'm trying to say is from my own experience as a former chief of staff for an attorney general, the amount of unmasking was extraordinary. And the amount of, in, and the amount of oversight is rather limited. Unlike a FISA warrant, <laughs> as much of a joke as those FISA judges were, there's still that process. But it isn't all that difficult if you're working for the President of the United States or you're at a senior level at the UN or a senior level in one of our departments to unmask. Even though it's supposed to be, you're supposed to show some self-restraint. So I think this is how that began. And that's how the Russia collusion story started. They heard things. They tried to put things together. They tried to manufacture and fabricate things terms of uh, drawing conclusions about collusion or what have you, and it involves Russia because they heard some discussions with Russia. And they unmasked Flynn, among others, later on. If they had heard discussions about the Ukraine, it would have been collusion with the Ukraine. If they've heard a lot of discussions with the Saudis, it would have been collusion with the Saudis. This is why I'm fairly well convinced that whenever this started, It started through that process. And through that process is how we got where we are today. These counterintelligence, uh, eavesdropping, espionage activities, wiretaps in some cases, which do in fact occur, uh, well before the dossier was known about, and well before this this uh, Papadopoulos issue came to the fore. So if I were a betting man, and I am a betting man, I would tell you that, that it is that it is that from which all of this sprang and uh, the unmasking, the backdoor surveillance of American citizens, the backdoor surveillance of Trump officials. And I don't, again, I don't know that we'll ever be able to figure that out, <clears throat> but... I am quite convinced that uh, those are the circumstances. Having trouble with this microphone. Were you able to hear me, Mr. Producer? Boy, oh boy. I feel like this, uh, I feel like this was put together by the North Koreans. I've got to have Band-Aids and paste and everything to put this thing together. So that's my bet on when this all first started. Um, again, I can't be 100% certain, but I don't know how else it could have. Newly declassified memos detail the extent of improper Obama-era NSA spying John Solomon today. 
actually not today. I pulled this together. This is from, what is it, July 25th, 2017. And I pulled this out, again, related to what I'm talking about now. You know, the greatest, the administration that had the, the, the most aggressive efforts to violate the civil liberties of Americans was the Obama administration. And not only did the Praetorian Guard media fail to report on it, the Praetorian Guard media continued to protect him and his administration and hire people from his administration who have fingerprints all over the place. They hire John Brennan at NBC to comment on what John Brennan did and then to criticize what the Trump people are doing. They, they hire this guy, James the Clap, a.k.a. James Clapper, to do the same thing. It's incredible. They hire a national security advisor to President Obama at CNN as their national security reporter. I can't remember that guy's name. What's his name? Doesn't matter. You can look all over the media. Same thing. Really quite incredible. It's really quite disgusting, quite frankly. All right. Let us go to Milton. Roseburg, Oregon, Sirius Satellite. How are you? Very well, Mark. Very well. Thank you for taking my call. Can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Um, Mark, what's alarming to me about this, and I hope I can articulate this correctly, is President Trump should look at this as an attack not on him, but on every American citizen. If this sets some sort of precedent, Mark, then we could have a prosecutor that could be given unlicensed, I mean, given unbridled uh, authority to investigate any American for a crime based upon unverified, salacious information. And then from that unverified, salacious information, not only investigate him for a possible crime, but his friends and his friends. How do, how do we know in the past Mr. Mueller hasn't done this as a United States attorney in Boston? How do we know that Mr. Comey hasn't done this as a United States attorney in Manhattan? I'm starting to wonder about these guys and their records. They need a real careful look at, real careful examination to see how these guys conducted themselves in the past. I have a feeling uh, that much of what you say probably occurred. I mean, I don't know, but uh, that seems to be the way they conduct themselves, doesn't it? Well, that's why that, that's what concerns me is if this since this is out in the open and it set some sort of precedent, then every American, especially the liberals, need to be alarmed because now... Liberals they- will never be alarmed. Too stupid or too ideological. All right, my friend. Thank you. We'll be right back. Mark Levin, the voice liberals fear most and you can call mark at 877-381-3811 well my listener was in deep with back taxes to the irs roughly 15 grand and he couldn't pay that's simple just a matter of time until they garnished his wages and seeked his uh, and seized his bank account umpteen times he'd heard me mention optima tax relief and how Optima knows that behind every tax problem are good people with families, homes, savings, and paychecks that need protection. And umpteen times he started a call and then didn't complete the call. Finally, finally he did. It was the best call he could have made. The tax experts at Optima qualified him for the Fresh Start initiative. 
a special IRS program that saved him thousands and put his tax debt to rest. Optima has resolved over half a billion in tax debt for their clients, and they're A-plus rated with a Better Business Bureau. Now, when you're ready to put your IRS crisis behind you, one call can start the process to solve it all. Call my trusted friends at Optima Tax Relief. Here's the number, 800-499-6300, 800-499-6300. That's 800-499-6300. Don't forget, one hour from now, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, I will be on the Fox News Channel on Hannity TV. Now, uh, Sean Davis over at The Federalist is reporting that uh, email show FBI brass discussed dossier de- uh, briefing details with CNN. Newly revealed emails show that former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe was keenly aware of CNN's internal understanding of a secret briefing about the infamous Steele dossier days before CNN published any stories on the matter, meaning they were receiving leaks. The emails, which were obtained by Senator Ron Johnson, Republican Wisconsin, also reveal that top officials use coded language to refer to the salacious and unverified allegations made by Steele in the dossier. Former FBI Director James Comey briefed then-President-elect Donald Trump on January 6, 2017, as you know, on at least one unproven allegation contained in Steele's dossier, which was jointly funded by the Hillary campaign and the DNC. Now, CNN broke the story about the dossier on January 10, 2017, touching off a firestorm of hysteria that culminated in not just the firing of Comey but by Trump, but the eventual appointment of Department of Justice Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Comey claimed that he was compelled to brief Trump on the dossier because, quote, CNN had it and was looking for a news hook. Hours before Comey briefed Trump, FBI Chief of Staff James Rybecki emailed staff that Comey, quote, is going into a headquarters briefly now for an update from the Sensitive Matter team, unquote. Just as the same officials dubbed the Clinton email investigation the mid-year exam, and the anti-Trump counterintelligence investigation, Crossfire Hurricane. They also used various phrases using sensitive to refer obliquely to the dossier. Two days after the briefing, on January 8, 2017, former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, who earlier this year was fired and then referred for criminal prosecution by the Department of Justice Inspector General for repeatedly lying about media leaks, wrote an email to top FBI officials with the subject, Flood is coming. Flood is coming. CNN is close, this is a quote, quote, CNN is close to going forward with the sensitive story, McCabe wrote to Comey, Rybeki, and two others. The trigger for them is they know the material was discussed in the brief and presented in an attachment, quote, unquote. He didn't detail how he came to know what CNN's trigger was for publishing the dossier briefing story. Let me suggest to you, as he knew, because he spoke to CNN, and that's probably the condition that they provided. I don't know that. That's my speculation. Although the January 10 story from CNN also claimed that Trump was presented with a two-page summary of the dossier, which was not part of the official intelligence community assessment given to Trump, Comey himself later claimed that he did not give the two-page document to Trump, raising questions about whether McCabe himself was a source for CNN's assertion that Trump had been given the entire two-page document during the briefing. 
In other words, it was leaked to CNN that there'd be a two-page document briefing, but Comey didn't give the two-page document. Shortly after sending his email to Comey and other FBI officials, McCabe emailed then-Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates. Notice how her name keeps popping up? And her deputy, Matthew Axelrod, another player. McCabe used the subject line news in his email to the DOJ officials. He wrote, just as an FYI and as expected, it seems CNN is close to running a story about the sensitive reporting. Quote, unquote, it's not clear how McCabe came to be so familiar with CNN's understanding of the dossier, its briefing, or how close CNN was to reporting on the matter. And it goes on, I think we know. I think we know that one of the reasons CNN never wants to get to the bottom of everything is because CNN is a participant in much of this. CNN is a participant in much of this, in the tyrannical conduct of the state, the targeting of Trump, his surrogates, and his campaign. And that's why you can see that CNN is so vicious and partisan in their attacks on Trump. It's constant. It's endless. One damn fool there after another. You know, Don Lemon accuses the president of being racist because the president has been particularly uh, critical of Don Lemon. Don, nobody's criticizing you because of your race. We're criticizing you because you're a moron and a left winger. Nothing to do with your races. Don't hide behind that. It's what's between your ears that's the problem. Mush. Mush. Dave, Pleasant, California. Pleasant, not Pleasantville. 870 The Answer. How are you? Well, hello, Mark. Hey, um, from all the details that I've been able to get, it would seem that at some point in time in the lead-up to the election, okay, Barack Obama decided it was more important to spy on Trump as an agent or a, or a dupe of the Russian government than it was to simply tell Trump, hey, somebody maybe is trying to infiltrate your campaign. And I think Obama just decided that Trump didn't love America. I'm really not following this. Obama decided Trump didn't love America, so Obama doesn't tell Trump that somebody's infiltrating... I'm not following this. Well, why would you spy on... Trump himself, why wouldn't you tell Trump? You want, because you want to defeat him? Is there some other rationale? Well, the, if you were going to get something, it would have to be, hey, the Russians, you know, you're working with the Russians. And that would mean that Trump was selling out his country. Maybe. Maybe and that's, that's what that's they're what, looking for. Or it could be a hundred other things that they're looking for. Well, what if what, what if the spy in the uh, Trump campaign came up with something else that was uh, at least they thought was damaging to his campaign? Thanks for your call, Paul. Congress, New York, the great WABC. Go. My great show. You asked a really good question how this whole thing started. And unlike you, I can afford a um, conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theory. In, in my opinion... We are looking at the Russian intervention in... Okay, in let, me, let, me, let me slow you down. I didn't ask how this thing all started. I said people are asking me when and how this may have started, and I, uh, my, my suggestion was it would have been part of the counterintelligence activity, some of it routine, and when they were unmasking Americans, particularly people in Trump world, and they might come across something and use that as a pretext. That's what I said. 
Uh-huh. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. But in my opinion, if, if people ask yourself a question, how much of this would Putin not know about? How much of it would he have been watching as if uh, his, his people weren't part of it? And the point being what? The point being that the Russian intervention into our elections and into our politics is exactly what we're talking about. He, he doesn't no, actually, I'm not. We know about the Russian interference in our election. We know that the Obama administration did damn near nothing about it. Uh, we know that the Russians are our enemies and Putin is our enemy, at least I do. What I'm talking about is the interference in our election by the Obama administration, by the CIA, by uh, national intelligence, by the FBI, uh, and, of course, the Hillary Clinton and DNC campaigns working through cutouts uh, with the Kremlin. That's what I'm talking about. I guess you're talking about the same thing. All right, sir. Thank you for your call. Am I missing something? I think I am. Tim, Naples, Florida, the great WFSX. Go. Hey, Mark. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say you're spot on with the uh, Confederate statues uh, being torn down, how it's a disgrace and uh, how uh, really it's going just to perpetuate history repeating itself. And I wanted to say, too, another side of it is that, that I look well, at Well, I, I don't know if it'll perpetuate history repeating itself. I don't think we'll have uh, slavery again or anything like that. My point is it's history. No, you, don't no. destru- you don't destroy history. Go ahead. I look at it as art. Not only history, it's art. So you don't also destroy art. No, I, I, I don't think you... most people look at those statues as art. They no, weren't no, put up. They weren't put up. Sir, 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 sir. We don't need to make absurd arguments. These statues weren't put up with all the pigeon crap on their heads because they're art. We know why they were put up. In some cases, they were put up to honor these generals. But it doesn't matter to me why they were put up. They're history. And by the way, some art should be taken down if it's ugly. I have no problem with that. Okay, what about, like, the Vietnam Wall? What happens if in the future, because remember when the Vietnam vets came back, they weren't respected, and then now we have a wall. What You know, someday they might say, well, that, that's going to have to come down. They might, but not because it's art, but because it's our history. And you're right. We need to defend the, uh, the not defend that, that we believe in what was done in aspects of our history, but defend the right for our history to exist. Right. All right, sir. Thank you. Okay. We'll be right back. You know, if you shower or brush your teeth, try to make your hair look presentable. Here's some good news. Dollar Shave Club has a lot of stuff to help you out. Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. Shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, everything. All of Dollar Shave Club's products are made with top-shelf ingredients that won't break your budget. You'll feel the difference. Plus, shipping is free with your membership, too. And here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just 5 bucks, you can get their Daily Essentials Starter Set. Comes with amber, lavender, calming body body cleanser, their world famous shave butter, 
and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. And you keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need. It's very convenient, and these are excellent products with the best the best ingredients you can get, too. So check it out all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash mark, dollarshaveclub.com slash mark. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash mark. All right. Let's continue. Let's see here. Mike, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the great WNTP. Go. Good evening, Mark. Uh, great to talk to you, and welcome from uh, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, actually. Well, I um, used to live there. Uh, no, I emphasize the words used to. Yes, but it's, it's still great. Uh, Mark, I'm a retired U.S. probation officer, and years ago I had uh, my specialty was pre-sentence investigation. I investigated a corrupt FBI agent. And uh, our office recommended the maximum penalty, and the judge asked why in chambers he would call it in. And I said, Your Honor, if the police are corrupt, the people have to feel confident going to the FBI. If the FBI is corrupt, there's nowhere to go. And that's how I feel now. There's nowhere to go. The president is absolutely justified in taking the action he's, he's taking for the good of the country and for the, for, the, for the integrity of the Constitution of the United States. Now, you're completely correct. And the the same crowd, whether they're in the media, the Democrat Party, um, that have been really just chasing this president, attacking this president from day one, we shouldn't be listening to them about the Constitution and how it works and so forth. They're not the constitutionalists anyway, are they? No, no, not at all. I mean, actually, what they're doing is trying to cover up uh, what he's trying to uncover. And in fact, a lot of the media were participants, as we're finding out, CNN in particular, correct? Yes, with uh, Donna Brazil and... Um, you know, now, but, but, but even more with this dossier, and uh, CNN was getting leaks from the FBI. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's frightening, um, and you know, I, I think of all this, my 27 years on the job, and, the, and every day going to work carrying that badge, and, and the oath that I took is the same oath that the President of the United States took, and mm-hmm. I'm thinking, who... Who cares about this anymore? You're you're one of the voices in the wilderness, and and I applaud the president for for sticking to his son. Well, you're very kind. Thank you, my friend. While we're near the end of the program, here's a good piece of news, a nice piece of news I thought you'd want to know from the Washington Compost. Millions of U.S. citizens don't speak English to each other, continuing decades-long rise. Isn't that swell? Isn't that cool? Millions of U.S. citizens do not speak English to each other. And this is a decades-long rise. Who doesn't say open borders? Who says open borders don't work? Who say we need more and more immigration without assimilation? I mean, that should be the Democrat mission statement. More immigration without assimilation. Balkanization is here to stay. If you don't have a common language, ladies and gentlemen, you don't have a common culture. It's that simple. And here I am behind the microphone. A day doesn't pass when I talk about the Constitution. And we can debate the words in the Constitution and so forth. If you don't speak English, you don't understand English, then you don't get the Constitution. The text or no text. You don't understand your rights. and You don't understand the limits on government, capitalism, all the rest of it. If you don't speak English. The incidents underscore a key fact, writes the Compost, about modern American society. As of 2016, 35 million U.S. citizens over the age of 18 are more than 15 percent, 
speak a language other than English at home, according to the U.S. Census. What's more, the census data show that the link between U.S. citizenship and English language has been growing steadily weaker over the past few decades. But that's not because newcomers to the country are less likely to be proficient English speakers than their peers in earlier decades. If anything, English proficiency among non-native speakers is increasing. See, I expected this. But here's the difference. And you'll never get this from the Washington Compost. It's that word assimilation. A hundred years ago, when people came to this country, from Russia, the Ukraine, from Ireland, excuse me, from China, from Italy, what have you, they wanted to assimilate into the American culture. They wanted to assimilate into the American culture. Today, people are discouraged from assimilating into the American culture. Even American citizens are discouraged from assimilating into the American culture. Instead, it's attacked. Our history is attacked. Our belief systems are attacked. They're attacked. And so... People come to this country from other countries and they see the leftists in this country attacking our own history, attacking our own country, attacking this, attacking that. Well, you know, it sets an example, doesn't it? Or people are told you have a right to free this and you have a right to free that as if it's in the Bill of Rights or a foundational right in the Declaration and so forth. No, you don't have a right to anything. You have a right to get off your ass and work. That's what you have a right to do. And that's a big right in this country, because in a lot of countries, you don't. Example, Venezuela. All right, I'll see you on Hannity literally in 30 minutes. I hope you'll join us. We're going to have a lot of fun. I'm raring to go. We salute all you heroes out there. Thank you for listening tonight, ladies and gentlemen. God bless each and every one of you. I'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.